Welcome to the Rebel Souls podcast, where we flip the middle finger to the status quo. I'm your host, Shelley Paxton, lifelong rebel, liberator of souls, and author of Soulbatical, a corporate rebel's guide to finding your best life. Settle in as we dive deep with badass leaders who are rebelling for what matters most in life, business, and the world at large. I'm so happy you're here. Let's get this revolution started. This is a Soulfire production. Hello and welcome back, my fellow rebel souls. I'm so lit up about this conversation. I just want to dive right in to telling you about my new friend and kindred soul on a totally aligned mission, Scott Shoot. Scott is, this is the first time I've ever had a live conversation with Scott. I got introduced to him as I talk about briefly in our conversation through a mutual friend, Chip Conley, because I saw Scott speak at the Wisdom 2.0 conference. And he started talking about how you know, the consciousness of a leader is the consciousness of an organization and how when a leader grows, the organization grows. And he talks about his mission as changing work from the inside out. And at the core of that is compassion. And all of these things might sound like compassion. How do we bring compassion into corporate culture? How do we bring compassion into leadership, especially on days where it feels like, you know, busyness is still a badge of honor and, you know, meetings are back to back and the pace is breakneck and all of the things like it seems at odds with this idea of what he says he calls his mission to mainstream mindfulness and operationalize compassion. And he's doing all of that at LinkedIn. And it's this beautiful, he talks a little bit about his journey, you guys. He's a lifelong seeker, as he calls himself, somebody who has been into meditation and understanding sort of the you know the the universe the divine the spiritual spiritual world beyond himself and at the same time somebody who has been hugely successful in the corporate world in the technology space for over two decades and now he's finding that these two kind of what he thought were completely separate parts of himself that he couldn't ever really understand how to fit together have come together into his role as the head of mindfulness and compassion at LinkedIn and as an author. He's a brand new book that just came out in May. It's called The Full Body Yes, Change Your Work and Your World from the Inside Out. And this is really helping us all, starting with ourselves, hence the inside out part, starting with ourselves to slow down, get quiet, listen deeply, check in, get deep into our bodies, understand the full body. Yes. What is that feeling and what is it telling us? So he talks about some of his own juicy experience with that. And then even more interestingly, what does it mean? 
to mainstream mindfulness and operationalize compassion? What does that look like in the context of LinkedIn? What does that look like in his life? What does that look like in terms of what other organizations can be doing? Because we know not all companies and not all leaders are leaning into this work. But it's really simple. He asks this powerful question. He's like, let's not try to put an ROI to this stuff. The question is simple. Do you care about your employees? And you guys know this is something I'm incredibly passionate about. The beginning of a Rebel Leaders Manifesto, which if you haven't read it, then please, we'll put a link to it. It's free on my website. Go read it. But the idea is that we want to bring more humanity to leadership and culture. So this conversation with Scott was like, lit me up from head to toe. And you can tell there's a whole lot of energy between the two of us in the conversation because we're so passionate. And I'm really excited to see someone in the corporate world doing this and showing other organizations and other leaders that it's possible. I mean, one of the principles that I talk about in the manifesto is modeling radical self-commitment and putting that on the C-suite agenda. And that's exactly what Scott is talking about and talks about some simple ways that they are making that happen. Things like micro compassions, you'll learn what those are and how you can start using those and operating with those as well. How we create space, how we slow down to speed up. You've all heard me say that before. And then we talk about what it means to be successful his version of that, what it looks like in his life. And what I love about Scott is he is this beautiful blend of corporate and compassion. And he's this beautiful blend of business and consciousness. And he's bringing it all together to help us learn this new way of being, this new way of leading, this new way of creating cultures that support human beings versus human doings. And that put our mental health and well-being at the forefront of us performing. It's really beautiful. You guys are going to love Scott. He is a new friend. We both just realized that we pretty much want to write our second books are kind of sort of the same book. And it was really exciting to find that out because I just want to lock arms with him and continue on this mission. I'm on a mission to liberate well, you know, Soulbatical is about liberating the souls of liberating a billion souls, the souls of humans and organizations. And we're doing more and more work in this space. So to find other people like Scott who are equally as passionate, I was so excited to bring you guys this conversation. So without further ado, let's jump in to my conversation with my new and what feels like now old friend, Scott Shute. Enjoy. Oh my God, my friend, Scott Shoot! Thank you for joining me. You feel like an old friend. Can I just call you a friend now? <laughs> totally. Absolutely. And thanks for having me. It feels like I'm in a, you know, a friendly, safe space. So I appreciate finding you as a friend. 
oh my God, you are in a safe space. You are in a brave space. You are in a rebel space. And um, yeah, little side note, Scott and I already, like we've been talking off camera and then I had one of those dumb moments where I forgot to hit record in the first five minutes of our conversation. So now we really know each other. Scott helped me to sink into, you know, learnings, lessons, deep breathing. I know we're going to talk about the power of breath in this conversation. So I love that we've already practiced it. So we're slowing down and thinking in. So I want to tell everyone, I'm not going to say I stalked you. I didn't stalk you, but I did make a bold request for an introduction because I saw you at Wisdom 2.0. It was virtual this year. So back in March, and I had heard about you and what you're doing at LinkedIn. I'd been intrigued because it seems so aligned with the work I'm doing in the world. And I'm like, okay, who's this guy? I want to hear more. And then as you started talking, literally, I pulled out my notes. It was like notes after notes after notes and highlights. And I finally just stopped because I was like, oh my God, he's talking about like our growth being an yeah. organization's growth and our you know consciousness as a leader being an organization's consciousness and introducing compassion into culture. And I just stopped taking notes and I was like, must find way to get introduced to this guy. <laughs> and then I find <laughs> yes. out that you know Chip Conley and you're a fellow modern elder alum and all the good things and here we are. So, Here we yeah. are. We See are kindred There's no souls. coincidence. It's just like, this is just the perfect time to finally our paths connect. Amen. And thank you for writing your book because you also mentioned this bad boy, the full body yes, which I know we're going to get into. So first of all, congratulations for writing your thank first you. book. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. As a fellow first time author, I know it's a huge feat. And there's a lot of you in this book, which I there really is. want... Yeah, I want to get into. So as we talk about what you're rebelling for, I want to dig into your personal story that led you on this journey. So let's start with the signature question. Scott, shoot, what are you rebelling for? I love it. I love it. Well, I think I'm rebelling for love. And here's here's why I think that. So I've had kind of a dual agency in my career or my life. On the one hand, I've had a career as an executive at LinkedIn. I was the VP of global customer operations, leading this team of like a thousand people, essentially all of the customer facing stuff that's not sales and a few other things. And I've had this long line of life where I'm a seeker. I started a meditation practice at 13 after asking a whole bunch of questions I didn't like the answers to at 10 or 11. I started teaching in college. I became a member of the clergy in my spiritual path, and uh, it's just been a big, important part of my life. But that whole time at work, I was wondering, like, why am I here? What am I doing? It seems like, you know, shouldn't I be following this bohemian path or something else? But when I checked in inwardly, you know, it was always like, no, you're exactly where you need to be. And I would complain to the universe. I was like, seriously, what does, I was selling semiconductors at one point. <laughs> what does That's selling semiconductors? Oh, super sexy. They go into the stuff that go into the stuff that go into the stuff that somebody might actually use. Totally. Super sexy. Like, anyway. So I found myself at LinkedIn in this place where I could bring that full self. You know, I was there. I've been there for, I've been at LinkedIn for nine years. The first six of them, I was in this operations role. And a couple of years in, I realized, wow, 
Our CEO is talking about his own meditation practice using Headspace at a company meeting. And he's talking about compassion and leadership. And so I thought, cool, maybe I can bring my own practice. Maybe I can bring that part of me I've been covering all this time. And so I started by leading one session on a Thursday afternoon at 4.30 in the heavenly conference room. Get that. The heaven, I thought that was very auspicious. And I was terrified, right? Because look, I grew up in the middle of Kansas. And let's just say that my meditation practice was something we did not talk about. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so I had to come out, you know, as a meditator. And I was terrified. And that first time, there was one dude there. And, you know, here that we were like sitting knees to knees, like doing this thing. Not, like I was scared. I'm sure he was scared. Never saw him again. But the next week, there were three people. Then there were five. Then it became a regular thing. And then I get invited to do these bigger things because people knew that's what I did. So the CFO would have a summit, 400 people of finance people. And I'd kick it off with a meditation session, you know, or the marketing team would have an offsite. And they'd have these big breakout sessions of 70 or 80 people. And you could choose. You could do you know, square dancing or trade whiskey shots or whiskey tasting, <laughs> or you could do meditation. And so I would lead these meditations with 80 people. And I raised my hand to be the executive sponsor of our mindfulness program. We didn't really have one. So we created one with a bunch of volunteers and that was cool. I was like, this is my ultimate dream job. I get to do this operations job. And I'm like, also this mindfulness guy. And then for me, the tipping point was our CEO. Jeff Wiener gave the commencement address at Wharton three years ago. And he talked about compassion, mm. right? In a commencement address, you get 15 minutes for your one big piece of advice. And these are some high powered young people coming out of Wharton. And he's like, look, if you're going to be successful in life, be successful at work, be compassionate. And he told his own story. And then the next day he's on TV and this is all the reporters want to talk about. One question about our business and 20 questions about compassion. I'm like, all right, all right, it's time. Because you just told our 16,000 employees that compassion was the most important thing that they could do. But what does that even mean? Like when they go back to their desk, then, then what? what? What does it mean? Yeah. And also I'd been in my role for six years. I was ready to do something new. So with great support from him and our head of HR, we essentially created this role three years ago with a blank sheet of paper. And so my job is to change work from the inside out by mainstreaming mindfulness and operationalizing compassion. Oh, mainstreaming mindfulness and operationalizing compassion. Okay. Yeah. We got to, we got to dig into those because right. I mean, so there's part of me that's like, I remember when I first, I think this is what drew me into your world and your message through wisdom yeah. 2.0, because I thought, why is it so unique? That a corporate, you know, a company, an organization has somebody who's the head of mindfulness and compassion. Why is that one of those like whiplash moments where you go, did I read that right? Because that's kind of the moment. And I'm somebody totally. who advocates for well-being and shifting the culture. And I was like, that's fucking amazing. That's yeah. amazing. Somebody does this in the corporate world. I've been looking for this human. So talk to us about, I want to dig into what this means at LinkedIn and what this means more broadly, but I really, can we dig into your personal story a little bit? Because what I want to dig into like how you made this connection mm. as a seeker, 
right? Because so many of us are like heads walking around on legs and we forget that we have a body, right? And we forget how to slow down and tune in. And the fact that you said you started this when you were so young, I mean, 13 years old. Yeah. Like I I didn't know which way was up, let alone how to go inside. Right. And my whole world was about external validation and accolades from my father and all the things. And I wrote down as I was reading your book, your description of the full body. Yes. And I Mm. want to read that back to you. And I would love for you to share like how did you discover that? Like, what did you do? How do you care? Because you share with us some really powerful moments over the years. So for everyone listening, this, this, this blew me away. I'm going to probably put it on a vision board somewhere. The full body. Yes. Where knowing happens at a deeper level than the mind could ever fathom. It happened in my entire being and a deep sense of peace with the answer took over where chaos had ruled. Mm. That sounds pretty good. I like it. Who wrote that? (laughs) (laughs) That guy is amazing. (laughs) Usually what happens is our minds are just so busy, right? Just chaos, the storm of chaos in our minds. And there's times, and for me, it's happened several different ways. Sometimes it just happens by grace. Like it just happens. And sometimes I go after it. Like I know I need to solve a problem and and I've, I've figured out how to go after it as well. But when we feel aligned, it's just such a good feeling. Now, sometimes that happens when you, and when I mean aligned, I mean our bodies, our emotions, our minds, our spirit, whatever word you want to use for that thing that is infinite and beyond everything else. When that's all aligned, it just feels good. Now, sometimes that happens in low stakes environment, like you're trying to decide what to have for breakfast and, oh, is it the eggs and bacon or the yogurt parfait? And you just know, like, okay, well, that's good, but it's way more powerful when it's something that you've been agonizing over. Yeah. Should I take this job? Should I leave this job? Should I stay in this relationship? Should I leave this relationship? Should I blah, 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 right? And those are hard because we have so much history. We're so close to these things. And I've had it, you know, as an example, when when I was being recruited to come to LinkedIn, this is over nine years ago. You know, when the recruiter called me on the surface, it didn't sound great. It sounded like more work for less money you know, than the job I was in. And I loved my old job, loved it. But I took the call, you know, and I started interviewing and I was like two or three interviews into it, you know, rounds of interviews into it. And one night I woke up in the middle of the night, 1.30 o'clock, 1.30 o'clock, 1.30 in the morning. And I just knew there was no reason for, there's no mind. It's just like, I'm supposed to do this job. Like, I don't know why, but I'm supposed to do this job. And I continued the process and just went through the rest of it. And it was, of course, it's been, you know, life-changing. And here's also what happened. When I went to go resign in my old job, which I loved for a boss that I loved, a boss that had taken a chance on me, I felt so guilty, right? Here, I'm, I'm going to go say that I'm leaving. Before I could say that I was leaving, he told me that unfortunately my job had been eliminated and that, you know, if I wanted to stay, I'd have to go kind of sideways and do take on this big project, CRM implementation project, which I would have poked my eyes out rather than to do this job. So life had conspired, you know, in this perfect way. And all I needed to do was listen. 
And I think that that's often what is happening. And there's this deeper part of us that's connected to a deeper part of life. And the answers, the truth, or, you know, a better way, I'm air quoting, a better way is all around us if we just listen. And when we do listen and we operate that way, then we get this thing that I call the full body yes. Yeah, we listen deeply. And it's like, it's the antithesis of what is often celebrated, especially in corporate culture, right? Busyness is worn as a badge of honor. I think yeah. you actually said something very similar to something I yeah. said in my book, which is I used to praise myself because I would go, I'm crazy busy. I'm yeah. crazy busy. It was yeah. the thing I said all the time. And now I look back on it and I was like, I will never say those two words together no. again. That's ever. a sickness. It is, because- it is an addiction. It's an addiction because when yeah. we're, we're proud of it, it's like, oh yeah, I'm so busy. And then people will start their sentences when they talk to us like, oh, hey, hey, I know you're really busy, but, and then it becomes our identity. And more than our identity, it's how we view ourselves so deeply. And when we do, when we operate from that energy, what does life give us more of? Mm. More busy, right? It's like a pie eating contest where the reward for eating all that pie is more pie. Yeah. It's such a reminder, like energy attracts like energy, right? Yeah. 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 And I love, so the message of slowing down, like bringing that into the corporate world is Mm. really powerful, right? I mean, you said uh, another question that I wrote down from your Wisdom 2.0 talk was like, you were like, don't try to prove ROI around this. Ask yourself one simple question. Do you really care about your employees? Yeah. I think that's right. I was like, and, like mind blown. It's so simple. It's so simple because look here, when, when I talk about this with execs at the end, there is no way that you can walk away and go, oh, we shouldn't do that. Like there's, it, it's just, it's so obvious. So here's how I think about it. I first talk about the history of work. I do this in two minutes, so don't get too excited. So <laughs> we, we think about, you know, in the history of work, first we had the agrarian age, right? And if you rewind to 5,000 years ago when we're building the pyramids, we had slaves and kings, right? And maybe over time you had landowners and serfs, but essentially workers were not valued. Workers were replaceable. They were just a number. And then we moved into the industrial age in the 1800s. And you imagine these big factories where everybody's making the same thing. And again, what power did the workers have? Did we really care about our employees? Probably not that much. We just go get a new one, you know, if you're the head of the factory. But if you fast forward to the information age, you know, and you're a company like LinkedIn, at LinkedIn, we don't have a manufacturing line. We don't have hard assets. We don't, we're not selling cars or copper or, you know, commodities. All we have is information. And so our number one asset, and by a long, long ways, is our people. And so, of course, of course, our biggest investment, the thing that we care most about is our people. There might still be companies where that's not true. And so I do start with this question. It's like, well, do you care about your employees? You know, are you back in the agrarian age or the industrial age? Are you in the information age? Because that's a real question. And if you're in the industrial age, sorry, in in the information age and your employees are your number one asset, then why wouldn't you want them to be at their best? Any big company knows that people, when they exercise physically, like it just makes them a better version of themselves. It reduces stress. It reduces anxiety. We provide a gym at work so people can be at their best. But the truth is, how many of us at work need to run a six-minute mile? 
or bench press 300 pounds? No, but how many of us at work need to be mentally focused or emotionally stable? Oh, oh, yeah, all of us. All right. (laughs) Raising my hand, yes. Right, all of us. So if you think of these things as mental exercises, then it's a no-brainer, right? Especially in this environment with the pandemic where where mental well-being has taken a hit, right? CDC did a recent survey, 41% of us are experiencing some sort of mental well-being issue, whether it's anxiety or depression. 11% of people, that's one in nine in this survey, said that in the last 30 days, they seriously contemplated suicide. One in nine. So look, meditation doesn't solve everything, but it's a nice vitamin, right? It moves people that are on the borderline, they're kind of in the yellow, it moves them into the green. And so as a company, if you really care about your employees, then you obviously offer things that help their mental well-being. And these things don't cost very much. You can do this almost for free. Yeah. I've been advocating for, I call it radical self-commitment because it's bigger than self-care, right? People talk about self-care and it's like bubble baths and spas. And I'm like, well, and it's a lot more than that. It is well-being. It is our mental health. It is our physical health. It is our emotional health. It is our values and our boundaries and our space. It's all of that. And advocating for that to be on the C-suite agenda. And it strikes me that that is exactly what you're doing. Yes. Yes. And so all those years of complaining to the universe about why am I in this job? It (laughs) finally makes sense. Oh, yeah, I'm a VP. I've been a leader and I'm a seeker. Like, how can I put these two things together? Because here's something interesting. I think it's interesting anyway. I think that companies have the power to shape consciousness in the ways that governments and religion have been doing for thousands of years. Right. So in other words, if you think of it from the other side, from the individual side, if we're a seeker, if we're interested in our own growth, call it spiritual growth. Wow. Back in the old days, you'd, you'd join a monastery or you'd backpack across the world or you would develop whatever. But now I think the workplace is just as valid of a place to develop spiritually and all parts holistically as any other place. And so it's a really interesting time. I think. I I agree 100%. And what I'm really interested in is what companies step up to this, right? So why are so many not leaning in? I mean, the question you asked is so simple. So why are more not leaning in? And then I want to talk about what does it mean to mainstream mindfulness sure, and, sure. and operationalize compassion? But yeah, what, what's your theory on that? Companies are collections of people. And so, look, there are 6,000 peer-reviewed papers, in other words, scientific papers about the benefits of mindfulness. But how many people have a daily practice? (laughs) So in other words, we already know, most people already know that this is good for them. But most people don't do it. Like more people do physical exercise, but not everybody does it. Even though everybody knows that it's good for you, we still don't do it. So as a collection, we're there in, you know, companies as leaders and as every part of it, it's easier just to do what we're doing. It's harder to operate this way. Just like it's harder to have a meditation practice. It's harder to have a daily physical practice. It takes discipline. So if you think of where we've come from in the agrarian age, 
if I'm the boss, my attitude is I told you what to do, just go do it or I'll find somebody else. Right now that attitude still lives in some managers and in some organizations. And we do it because it's the easiest thing to do. It requires no skill, right? So if we're having a bad day as a manager, it's like, I just told you to do it. Just do it. Why is there a problem? It's actually much harder to be a compassionate manager. A compassionate manager develops an understanding and awareness of the other person. They have a mindset of kindness, and then they have the courage to take action, even when it's hard, even when it's for the long-term benefit of the other person and not myself. It's the moving from me to we. So just like we have challenges moving from me to we as an individual, we have the same challenges because we're the same people at work moving you know, as a company. Now, more companies are getting it and more leaders will be getting it. And this is, I think this is my work, right? Is how do you change consciousness? How do you change work from the inside out? So let's talk about, because you're on the topic of compassion, can we flip these things and say, how do Do we operationalize compassion? So you just gave us some really good examples of what it looks like to infuse compassion into the culture of an organization. And you talk about this in your book too. So I want to get into some of the nitty gritty, like for those who are listening, especially those fellow rebel souls who are inside their leaders, inside other organizations that are not LinkedIn and maybe not as progressive or as far along, how can they be part of the consciousness part of making this choice? Right. Because you have actually, I want to set this up by reading another quote. I wrote down okay. so many quotes from your book. I promise not to completely bore you, but I love that um, this seems perfect. So, this quote is We're in charge. We can define success for ourselves. We can choose how we'll keep score. We can choose how we think about our work and our duties. We can choose how we respond to life. In this choice lies our freedom. What are you choosing? Yeah. (laughs) And it's, it's just, it strikes me that that's a beautiful framework for this conversation to say to more leaders, we can choose this path. So what does that look like? Sure. I think I try to simplify things, right? If we move from me to we, then we're catching it. So what does that mean? Well, at an organizational level, it means something like, you think about sales, right? My first job was in sales. It means, hey, don't sell something your customer doesn't need at the end of the quarter just so you can hit your quota, right? In other words, as a salesperson, your job is to provide long-term value. Your job is to deeply understand the customer and understand what they need. Like, what does success look like to them? And then how can we make them successful? Because when I make them successful, that's going to be good for me long-term. Like, this is this is not just selfless. Like this is actually how I win as a salesperson. Short term, maybe, maybe not. Long term, absolutely. Or when we're doing product development, you know, when we're thinking about the next revision of our product and we're thinking about what it's going to do, the first question should be, all right, well, what is the impact on our customers, on our members when we put this in place? Yeah, maybe we'll make 12% more revenue, but Is it a good experience or a bad experience for our customers? Yeah. And then it's the simple things, right? Like you're in a staff meeting. Instead of just jumping right into the business, okay, let's just talk about our to-do list, right? 
if there's eight of us and we know each other because we're there every Monday at nine o'clock, let's just go around and see. Let's ask, what are people grateful for? What's one personal or professional win in their life? Something like that. And what this does is it moves all of us from our heads to our hearts. And we start to see each other as people first, instead of as just units, cogs in the machine that we're building together. But it also moves us from thinking about things in kind of a dark or pessimistic way to one that we're open and creative and optimistic. And at first, when you start doing this, you're like, oh my God, we're going to spend eight minutes of our hour doing this. Like, are we wasting time? Like, no, you know, you sometimes need to go slow to go fast because what you're doing what you're doing is building this connectivity. You're building this psychological safety within the team so that when things get hard or you really need to do, you need to put in the time and work hard one week or one month or whatever to get a project done. All those people are now engaged where instead, if you just come in and you're like, Hey, I told you guys what to do, do it. It's like, you think they're going to be by you by your side if they have a choice? No, no. So these are simple things that we can do. It's, it's the simplest is moving from me to we. How do I make everybody around me more successful? And knowing that when I do that, I will be more successful at the end as well. Yes. And you also talk about this. I love the term micro compassions. Oh, yeah. You talk about. So can you give us a few examples? Sure. Because to me, I was like, uh, this is so easy. Yeah. This is so easy. Yeah. And yet, why is it like we, you hear microaggressions right. more right. often in our, you know, in our lexicon and in our conversations and certainly in our news media, than totally. you hear about micro compassions. Totally. So exactly. This does not have to be complicated. So micro compassions are anything that helps us build connectivity, anything that moves us from me to we. So you're standing in the grocery line and instead of just staring at your phone, looking at something you already looked at 20 minutes ago or two minutes ago, how about turn around and have a conversation with the person standing next to you? Now, in the beginning, they might be like surprised because everybody's lost in their phone. But if you can play, I play this game where I, um, you know, I try to get people to smile. I try to get them to laugh when we're just standing in line and and I become competitive. Like I'm like, I'm going to get this woman to laugh, even though she looks super sour at me. And by the end, you know, we're old friends and we're, you know, enjoying each other's company. And I guarantee you, she feels better leaving the market, you know, than when she came in. So smile, talk to each other. It could be, you know, at work, it's remembering things. These are simple things, like remembering things about your coworker. So on Monday morning, you're like, oh, hey, Colin, did you go surfing this weekend? Or hey, Brian, I know you're working on your deck. Like, how's that going? Or how Kim... I know you've been working on your next crochet project. Like what, what are you doing now? Like, is your, is a scarf you're working on all done? Like, let me see pictures of it. When we tap into that, when we really are curious and then spend the time to listen, it lights other people up. Yes. And actually listening, just the act of listening, being present and really listening, I believe is one of the most compassionate things that we can do. Because here's the deal. I think each of us, one of our most deeply held needs, like deep human needs, is the need to be seen and heard and acknowledged. All of this is another way of saying need to be loved, right? Yeah. And all we have to do is listen. So asking the question instead of going, oh, hey, how's it going? It's like, I could do that, but I could say, okay. But on a scale of one to 10, like how, how are you today? And then 
listen fully to the answer and you'll start getting different responses. So this, these are simple ways, but this is how we build that connectivity at work and with everybody around us. You had another question in there that you just reminded me of. So I, I, it's driven me crazy forever that people are like, how are you? What's going on? You know, what yeah. one, it doesn't mean anything. And two, we're not even pausing to listen, as you just exactly. said, right? And you had a question, what's most alive for you right now? Yes. And I'm like yeah. a collector of questions, like a connoisseur of questions, <laughs> if there's such a thing. Yeah. And that is going on my list because I thought, that is so beautiful. What yeah. it shakes it up. And I'm sure the recipient of that question is thinking, maybe that person actually cares. Exactly. Because that's, can't that's ask not a, a question throwaway like question. that. Yeah. You can't ask a question like that and be halfway down the hall, which I no. remember from my Harley days, people are like, Hey, how are you? And then they're on to the next then thing. You're looking like, at their back. <laughs> yeah. But exactly. that's beautiful. I, what's most alive for you right now? Like that's a micro compassion. And then listen. Exactly. Deeply, right? right. And find that connection. I love that. So I have to, I have to ask you the question that keeps coming to my mind is, okay, so how do we, so listening deeply, getting curious, being clear, having the tough conversations, getting people to smile, simply smiling at people when you pass them, like that would be a really good start, right? The slowing down piece. I want to come back to that. Because I'm really curious how in a corporation, especially one that is doing as much as LinkedIn is, how do you operationalize slowing down? What does that look like? I started this conversation with you going, do you have a buffer after this? Because if not, I want to give you some time back. (laughs) And then it made me think like, how do you do that? Especially for a company that preaches and lives compassion. Look, I think this is all work in progress. So I'm not going to tell you that either I or LinkedIn has this solved, but here are some ideas I've been working on. So I think this happens at the individual level. Like we're each individually responsible for our own schedules, you know, to the extent that we are. Yeah. Uh, and then it happens at the company level or at the organizational level. So let me talk about the organizational level for a second. So here are some things that I'm trying to push. And so also some things that we've done. So things that we've done that had nothing to do with me is it every, about the third Friday of the month, we have in day, like LinkedIn or investment day. And it's a day when we schedule no meetings. It's a day when you, uh, it's designed to, for you to invest in yourself. So you could take a class, you could teach a class, you could do something with your team. You could go volunteer out in the community or some people just use it to catch up. So that's once, once a month, a whole day with no meetings. Um, we do two weeks a year and this year three, where we shut down, we shut down during 4th of July week and also during Christmas to new year's week. Uh, and this year we did another one. I call it spring break. I'm sure there was a different corporate name for it, (laughs) but we did it in the spring (laughs) and, and that's beautiful because when we all take it together, you know, you don't come back to a thousand emails, right? Everybody was off at the same time. And so it forces those people who just work even if they've built up all this vacation, they, you know, and they never take it, it forces them to take a break. Um, those are things that happen. One of the things that I'm, that I'd love to happen is, you know, how in your scheduling tools, like we use Microsoft outlook. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As our calendaring tool. What if the default meeting was either 25 or 50 minutes instead of 30 or 60 minutes? 
right? That's and been what my if dream. Every, right? And what if everybody actually did it? You know, because it's like, oh, you have a hard stop at 825 instead of 830. Because what happens today is we're booked back to back to back to back. And oh, the 830 ran a little bit late. And now I'm just hopping on my 830. And then pretty soon I look up and I'm just, man, I haven't had a breath or a chance to go to the bathroom like for six hours. That's real. And so Very real. what if the technology forced us to? And, you know, one of the things that I had arranged, but it was right before shutdown. So it hasn't, it hasn't had a chance to be live yet, but every one of our conference rooms has video conferencing, right? And so imagine you go into a room, it has the video screens there. And before your meeting, what if it had these little, you know, 90 second starters? Like, okay, we're all going to take a break. We're going to do a 90 second guided meditation before our meeting. Yes. You know, or it has these questions and we could cycle through, right? Like what's most alive in you? Like, here's the question of the day. And if you had 10 or 15 questions like that as a way to encourage the same behavior. And ultimately all of this only matters if the CEO and the C-suite is talking about it. Because if some IT guy makes that happen, every meeting ends at 25 or six or 50, but the CEO's meetings always run long and you're always up against it, then the behavior never changes. Yeah. But if the C-suite is talking about their own practice and talking about the importance of taking a break and talking about the importance of scheduling 90 to 120 minutes every day, just of open time to do your work, then it happens. It takes root. Yeah. And Jeff Wiener's, you know, keynote speech or commencement speech at Wharton was the catalyst for everything we're talking about within LinkedIn. (laughs) Certainly not in your life. You've been doing it for a long time, but for all of this coming to a head. What happens is it gives the rest of us an umbrella to operate from that principle. So in some cases, they only have to talk about once or twice. (laughs) They need to live it too, but it's an incredibly powerful thing uh, to talk about and then live. Uh, It is. Those are really good ideas too. So I hope that gives a spark for somebody to have a conversation internally and we can start to model this in our own organizations. So let's talk about mainstreaming mindfulness. Sure. And what does that look like? What does that look like for you? And what does that look like more broadly in a company and in the culture? Sure. So I use the word mindfulness as a bridge word or as an umbrella term to mean lots of things. So it is meditation, but the the highest level, it means like awareness, self-awareness. So we're talking about mindset. We're talking about other practices that get us to that point. So the types of things that we offer, again, we're trying to mainstream it, right? This is the important part. So just make it as commonplace and normal as physical exercise. So, you know, pre-pandemic, we would have 40 or 50 meditation sessions around the world. For some scale, we're about a 16,000 person company operating in, I don't even know how many countries, 30 or 40 countries. Um, So lots of meditation sessions. We do these uh, community sessions where people, it's kind of like, it's kind of like a study group. You know, Mm. you, you go with your friends, you drop in, you get five or eight minutes of recorded lecture. You get five or eight minutes of guided practice. And then it's discussion. Like, how is that topic relevant for what's going on in my life? We do, we give everybody access to an app. We love the work or the meditation app called Wise at Work from our friends at Wisdom Labs. It's really good. It's made for people who are working. And so in, in addition to the meditation stuff, like reduce anxiety and sleep and that stuff, there are work specific things. 
like recognizing my bias or I'm about to go give feedback or get feedback. What do I do? And go through this practice. And then once a year, we do a 30-day challenge with the app. So we usually do it in October. And the challenge is, hey, if you have 20 sessions, in other words, if you meditate 20 times or 20 of these sessions, we'll give you a free t-shirt. And, and this year we did a hoodie. And so what I would say is never underestimate the power of a free hoodie on people's <laughs> behavior. Because we had so many people sign up and you know, uh, a lot of them, you know, over a thousand of them actually completed the challenge. And hoodie is the new uniform since we've been at home. So let's <laughs> totally, be honest. <laughs> totally. Totally. It was a great one too. It was a really good hoodie. Um, and I do a speaker series. I do mini retreats and all of this. Oh, I, I do meditation teacher training. So we, we did two classes of 45 people where you just train them to be ready to do a, a five minute practice for their team, you know, at the beginning of a team meeting or something like that. And just let people share their own experience. What we're looking for is people to be experts in their own experience. Mm. You know, so it doesn't, you don't have to have started when you were 13, like I did. Uh, that is certainly not the bar to entry. All you have to do is be genuine about your practice and be open about your own practice and what you're learning. And if you share like, hey, this is great for me, I'd like to share it with you guys. Yeah. And then if you get asked questions like, I don't know, I'll go find out. You know, you, you don't have to know anything other than your own experience. And we find that that is really powerful because then people want to share. Just like I was a volunteer for three or four years before taking this job. And it was the favorite, it was my favorite part of my job. I have over a hundred volunteers and this is usually their favorite part of their job as well. Oh, I love that. I was going to ask you maybe coming out of that, what does a mindful meeting look like? <laughs> well, you know, a start to a mindful meeting is as we're arriving, I mean, meetings usually start two or three minutes late anyway, right? So you imagine at, if your meeting starts at nine o'clock, how about at nine o'clock, whoever's leading the meeting just says, hey, you know what? We're just going to take a, a minute or two of silence and we'll start at 9.02. And if you want to meditate or if you just want to sit and be quiet, but don't go on your phone. Like just take it as an opportunity to just settle in, breathe, whatever your practice is, and let's just uh, be quiet. Or you could give guidance on, you could think about something you're grateful for, whatever it is. And as people are filtering in, everybody's being quiet and there's this kind of reverence, like, oh man, I'm late. And it, you know, it, it encourages this behavior where you show up on time. So you're there for this you know, reverent meeting. Now, the rest of the meeting is up to them the other 58 minutes of the meeting. But I think what happens is you start off from a much different place. Yeah, People have had a chance to gather their thoughts. They're not as scattered. So they're more emotionally centered. They're more mentally, you know, stable. They're more present. And it doesn't mean that everything's perfect, but man, you just gave yourself a much better chance of getting it right. Well, and I think one of the operative words there is present, right? Mm. Like being full. You talk about this a lot in the book. Like it is, mm. it's at the core. It is the essence right. of us showing up and being compassionate and showing up as leaders with consciousness. Like if we're not fully present, we can't get there, right? That's true. And there's some, I mean, you guys know when you're present, when I'm present, I'm so much better at my job. I'm so much better at my marriage. I'm so much better at all of my relationships yeah. versus if I'm trying to do any one of those things and be on my phone at the same time. It's just, it's just so obvious. And it's also very hard 
because we're surrounded by distractions. The average American has an attention span of eight seconds. Mm. We check our phones 140 times a day. And it takes about 20 minutes to get into a state of deep thinking, right? So you put these three stats together. It's like, wow. Okay. Well, how many times a day am I ever going to get to that deep thinking state? Mm, Not very often. It's hard, right? So it really takes a conscious effort to first be aware that I'm not being present. And then it's taking action to be present. And the other part of that, just, I mean, we're better at what we do, but being present makes us happier. I thought this was really funny. There's a study that, um, you know, if you actually just think about for a second, like what makes you happy? Just think about it. Let that roll in your mind. What makes you happy? Turns out the act of being present is twice as powerful on your happiness as the thing you just thought about. Oh, wow. Yeah. So just being present. So I could be doing something I don't really like to do, like washing dishes at the sink. But if I'm fully present while I'm washing dishes or peeling potatoes, I'm probably happier than if I'm doing one of the hobbies I love, but I'm distracted while I'm doing my hobby. And in fact, I think that's why we love our hobbies so much. If you think of whatever your hobby is, like me, mountain biking, when I'm mountain biking, I'm not thinking about work or the project I have due next week. I'm just there in the moment. I'm in flow state. Yeah. Or my favorite example is, remember that time, maybe in college or hey, maybe last week, you were at some party and you met that special someone. And by the end of the, uh, the end, I was going to say meeting, by the end of the party, <laughs> you, were, you were totally making out with this person and the whole world disappeared except for uh-huh. just the two of you, right? Now, okay, there is a lot going on in that particular moment, but one of the things is fully present. Yeah. You're not thinking about balancing your checkbook or washing your socks. You are right there in you that You are moment. most definitely not checking your phone. <laughs> most, if you are, that moment's not going to last very long. <laughs> that person is not going to stick around in, in. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. So you want to be happy, be present. Oh, I love that. That's a juicy way to think about it. It's like, it also slows us down, right? To connect yeah. the dots between a few of the things you've said, like starting meetings the way that you suggested if nothing else is a way to get people to take probably their first deep breaths of the day. Exactly. And just slow down and sink in and get us fully present. And I love what you just said. That becomes like a a drug-free mood alteration, basically, right? Which is is incredible. Oh my God. I I love that. So let's talk about you. You talk about another, um, I think it's a mindfulness practice that you had, you taught, you have, you talk about it quite a bit in the book and it's something I love as well, a gratitude practice, mm, right? Yes. And you sparked something in me that I wrote down the other day while I was finishing up the book and I wrote down like what you talked about. I don't even know where it is in my notes. I think I remember it was like, you were talking about when you're in those really frustrating experiences, yes how you shift to gratitude and then how that sort of creates the freedom. And I was like, oh, wow, this is so cool. What I thought about is that's the path from groan, which is the frustrating moment to gratitude, to growth. Yes. Like those three G's. I was like, that's beautiful. It is so hard in the moment, but here's something that has helped me. Um, And depends on what your worldview is, but you can always assume the following. So um, let's say you believe in car- reincarnation. So what if before you came to this life, 
this person who is annoying you, right? Maybe your boss, maybe you have a boss you really, really do not like. What if you chose them, right? What if you're in between lives and you're trying to figure out what lessons you're going to learn and you're like, it's pickup basketball and you're picking your roster of souls that are going to go with you into this life. And you're like, wow, I really need to learn how to stick up for myself. All right, fine. Who are you going to choose? Like, oh, I'm going to choose that person. And they show up as your boss, right? When you're 40 years old. Yep. Now, whether you believe this is how the world works or not, I find it extraordinarily powerful to then operate like this. Because this is, this is the example I had. And every time I would go to this particular boss and have my one-on-ones, like, I would feel this pit of anxiety in my stomach. And because they were a bully, they were mean to me, they were not nice to my teammates or the people that I was in charge of. But I thought about this, like, what if I could be grateful for them, not just tolerate them, but grateful for them because of what they were teaching me. Now, just sidebar, this is like black belt level, like this is really hard. And even knowing it doesn't make it any easier. And so every time I would get angry or frustrated with this person, I would stop inwardly and I would kind of smile and say, thank you inwardly to them. Mm. You know, it's like, because if I'm getting upset about something, then clearly there's something I'm learning here, right? This is my growth edge. And if I was honest with myself about what was going on, I was learning how to stick up for myself. I was learning how to be a better manager by watching what I thought was a bad manager. I was learning and I had a long list of things that I was learning from this experience that I did not want. Like, let's not be, let's not sugarcoat it. I did not want this, but if I'm going to go through it, I might as well learn something from it. Yeah. So to me, that's black belt level gratitude in the moment. Because look, it's easy to look back at something that happened 10 years ago or 30 years ago and realize, oh yeah, that time I got bullied as a kid, that made me stronger later on and blah, blah, blah. And now I can see it as an adult. But yeah, it was 30 years ago. But when it's in the moment, to say in the moment, thank you, like, wow, that's freedom when we can do that. It's, yeah, like when it's still a wound, not a scar, right? Which is really powerful. (laughs) Like that's that struck me when I read that. I was like, wow, because most of us are like, oh, when it becomes a scar, I'll look back and I'll see the gift and I'll learn the lesson. But in the moment, you're right. That's black belt. And I have to tell you, I used... The question, I think it was in this exact same, you were telling similar story. You had a question in the book that I used with a client the other day. How would I respond if I had chosen this situation to make me stronger? Exactly what you just said. And she was just like, like literally (laughs) silence. And then she was like, you know, the voice of knowing was like, oh, mm -hmm. yeah, it's the shift. It's this shift, which I think is super powerful. If we move from this idea that life is happening to us and we feel kind of victim-y, right? And if we can move into this place where we believe that life is happening for us, even if you don't believe it, like what if you responded to all of life in that way? Life is happening for us because that's when we get our growth. And then I think at some point there's this elusive next step. This third step is when we are fully in tune with ourselves. Yeah. and fully in tune with that deepest part of ourselves, which is connected to all life, then life can happen through us, right? We can become mm-hmm. a full co-creator with the rest of life. And that's when really the freedom and the magic happen. 
that's what I call the full body chills. We've just gone from the full body. Yes. To the full body. Like I have head to toe chills. That's (laughs) it is powerful. It is. So two more things that I want, I want to read to you, you know, because I've shared with you briefly that one of my, um, I guess one of, one of the flags I wave, you know, on my mission to liberate the souls of humans and organizations is around this concept of success full. What does it look like for us to not feel empty as we're climbing the mountain we choose to Mm -hmm. climb, to feel filled up and fulfilled Mm -hmm. and feel the kind of joy and happiness that you talk about, right? You've Mm -hmm. talked about in your book and here, and you Mm -hmm. had a really, powerful. So I talk about rewriting the script of success and you talk about success on your own terms. And I want to read you, this is the last quote I'll read you from your own book from this amazing (laughs) writer. So you guess who wrote this. Our achievements at work may be the way that society, the way others define us. Those connections, those achievements of the heart will be the way we define our own success in the end. Part of the part of me has been keeping score wrong this whole time. Yeah. Yeah. Read the next slide. Well, actually, well, oh, I don't have it in front. Of, oh, wait, no, no, so no, I'll no, finish I do, it. I do. I'll finish it. Yeah. I'll finish what is it. it. So what I've come to learn is that no matter how much we're in love with these current jobs that we're in, if you fast forward 15 years from now, all of them will be reduced to three bullets on a resume or a LinkedIn profile. But it's the connections of the heart. It's our loved ones, our dear ones. That's how we'll keep score at the end, right? When we're sitting on our deathbed, you know, whatever that looks like, we're not going to wish that we had blah, blah, blah at work. We're not even going to care. But if we're, if we're by ourselves, literally, or if we're surrounded by our loved ones, that will make a difference. So I think I just got what your definition of successful is. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. What great, what great perspective, right? Because, yeah, you know, sure. Bronnie Ware's book, The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. Number yes. one regret is I lived the life someone else expected of me, yes. not life on my terms. I'm paraphrasing. Yes. But yes. Yes. yeah, it's exactly what you're saying. That's right. When we live the full body, yes, we're essentially living love, right? And for me, love is just another word for the divine. Um, Everything I do at LinkedIn is totally secular, but at the root of it is how do we talk about love at work, right? And so we're using these words, compassion, we're using these words, connection, but it's essentially, this is what we're after, right? It's this development at the deepest, deepest, deepest level And I don't have to join a monastery to do that. I can do it at work. And that's been the Mm. biggest kind of revelation for me, uh, being a reluctant worker (laughs) who climbed the mountain. Who climbed the mountain and still likes to strum his guitar and ride his mountain bike on the weekends. I love it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> no, I love it. And I was, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to end us here, but I want everybody to read the book to find out about the secret of the orange rhino, because I really uh, wanted yes. to ask you about that, but let's leave it as a teaser. This is yeah, the reason you got to go read the book. To, yeah. You got to go read the book because first of all, I remember when I picked up your book, I'm like, 
there's got to be a really good story about this. I'm a brander <laughs> and a marketer and a rhino does not show up on your cover for no reason. And then when I got to it and my favorite color is orange. So I was like, uh-huh. oh, okay, you guys. So you've got a, the, the secret, <laughs> the secret to all of this and to Scott's success in his seeking is the orange rhino. We're going to leave you with that <laughs> teaser. Now you have to go read. Right. Now you have to go read the book. Scott, That's this right. has been amazing. I could talk to you all day long and I hope this is the first of many conversations. Really, Beautiful. thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, I have huge gratitude for you joining us and for saying yes and for being on this mission to change work from the inside out. We desperately need it. And just know I'm locked arms with you however I can support because it lights me up. So thank you. Yeah. I hope you guys got some good nuggets out of this as well. And until next week, stay bold, brave, and badass. Hey, Rebel. Thanks for listening. If you were inspired by what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review so our fellow rebel souls can find us. We have big work to do together. And if you want to dive deeper, head on over to my website at sylbatical.com and follow me at sylbatical on Instagram. Until next time, stay bold, brave, and badass, and never stop asking, what am I rebelling for?